Why haven't you seen the gold Why haven't you seen Unforgiven? Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. As always, I am Bubba Wheat from Flights, Tights, and MovieNights.com. And today, and uh, in every episode, I have a guest with me who is going to introduce me to a film that I've never seen, um, which is usually a classic or a modern classic, um, and we'll discuss that. And in return, I have him watch a, a superhero film that he's never seen before, and today my guest is Dwight Hurst from the Broken Brain podcast. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing great. It's good to have you on. Why don't you go ahead and take just a quick minute to uh, plug your stuff and let everybody know a little bit about you and where they can find you online. Sure thing. Thank you. Uh, the The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. That's the, the tagline, so I like to use it. Uh, I, I'm a psychotherapist by training. I have a private practice uh, in, in – uh, Utah, where I, I live and practice uh, therapy, and I've been doing I've been working in the mental health field since the turn of the century. And so uh, about a year and a half ago, I decided to do something I've always wanted to do, which was to launch a podcast. So I podcast mostly about mental health and psychology. It's something that uh, I don't know. I, I kind of try to recreate uh, an experience that I've had working with people behind the scenes in the mental health industry. We, I find that therapists and social workers and doctors who work with uh, mental illness and, and mental health that they uh, I don't know they have a certain pers- uh, perspective on the world and it's kind of interesting because mm-hmm. we tend to look at things in the psychological context of why they happen and uh, there's there's just certain I don't know thing, thing, things the way we look at things it's also a pretty broad topic we cover uh, all different elements of therapy and recovery from we end up talking about addiction and trauma quite a bit but there's also other elements that people aren't as familiar with so that's uh, it's what I do. Mm-hmm. You can follow the show on Twitter at Break a Brain. That's one word, Break a Brain. Um, you can also go to my website, which is just my name. It's DwightHurst.com. And if you put a slash podcast on there or click on the part that says podcast, you can get an update of all things that have to do with the, the podcast, uh, as well as some other kind of spinoff podcasts that I'm, I'm, I'm helping a few people. We're building a little bit of a network for uh, entertainment and self-help type of podcasts that people can listen to. So we're trying to group some of those together, and that's where you'll find the, the latest, greatest breaking news on, on any of those things. Yeah, and and you do every once in a while throw movies into the mix because I know the the one episode that I listened to, um, you were talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. That's right. Yeah, we had our uh, our Halloween episode. We we did talk about uh, we took a we took a little bit of a psychological spin a little bit there where we mm-hmm. talked about uh, we used that to talk about the nature of fear and some of the things that we noticed about the film watching it that way. Um, you know, and we did uh, for Christmas actually had uh, Michael from uh, Michael Dennis from the War Machine vs. War Horse podcast on. Mm-hmm. We talked about the movie, the classic It's a Wonderful Life and uh, some of the reasons why people identify with it. And Yeah, so we do uh, talk about pop culture and movies every every so often as well. Um, we've got a, a Lost episode. Not quite Lost, I just have never aired it yet, where when we were learning how to use the recording equipment where me and some other therapists talk about the movie What About Bob? And so <laughs> I haven't decided if I'm going to... That's a teaser there, I guess. I haven't decided if I'm going to share that or reshoot it or re-record it at some point. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that that would definitely be uh, interesting to to hear about from a, a mental health professional's perspective. Yes, so. because I, I've I've seen that once, but I haven't seen that since I was like a kid, and I probably didn't even get most of it. I, yeah, it was weird to go back and watch it after having been a therapist for several years. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, I also have a, a few questions to get to know a little bit more about your movie tastes. Um, so to start off, what are three movies that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet? So uh, it, it's interesting thinking about that movie. Um, one of and, and I know one of them crosses over a little bit. As well to hear one of your other questions, if that's all right. Sure. A transition, if you want. <laughs> but so I, I picked a few. There, there's actually quite a few because I love movies. I love any form of like interesting storytelling. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you do. That would be weird if you didn't. <laughs> oh, movies? What? Uh, that kind of suck. So uh, one of them actually, it, funny enough, it's on my mind because I just uh, just was watching it uh, the other day. Which is the movie about a boy with Hugh Grant. That's one that I own and can watch pretty much whenever. And uh, that one's, uh, I guess, I guess that one's more more meaningful because uh, I guess it's like got some emotional stuff to it there. One of the other ones is also my favorite superhero movie, which I know is one of your questions, mm-hmm. uh, which is The Dark Knight, the second yeah. of the Chris Nolan trilogy, and I I think clearly the best. I don't know, you you must have an opinion on that. Yeah, I I mean it it comes up. Uh, it is the most popular answer to that question yeah um still and and i've asked a lot of people that question and the my response is almost always the same where it's i um i can't disagree with it just because it (laughs) is such a great film yep it no it's it's a it's a good one i uh, my, and so my third one is is actually I think an example of a phenomenon. My third 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 one that I can see over and over. It's a phenomenon of a movie that I don't believe is a great movie. But if I ever run into it on the TV, flip through channels, I, you just got to watch the rest of it. And I think there's a few movies that meet that criteria. But the one that exemplifies that for me is uh, Gone in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage, the remake, <laughs> <laughs> which is ridiculous in a lot of ways. I really – I admit openly that it's a ridiculous movie. But if I ever am flipping through channels and get to it, it's like, all right, I'm on board. <laughs> yeah, Nicolas Cage is one of those just movie personalities where – I mean he has a lot of fans and I would say at least half of his fans – just enjoy him for his for craziness. Crazy, right? <laughs> so yeah, and and the the other two that that you mentioned are are both films that I haven't seen. I, I haven't seen a ton of Nicolas Cage movies, and in fact, just uh, the last episode was my first time watching The Rock. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. What'd you think? Um, that that was a lot of fun. I, I yeah. did I did enjoy it. Um, the I. I mean, Michael Bay gets a lot of flack nowadays, but he knows how to craft a good action film. And how to crash a vehicle. That's another one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's another one I would put in the context of being silly but fun to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I uh, So you, ha- you haven't seen either of those, huh? Wow. Sounds like, sounds like we got future episodes in the making. Yeah, I mean... There's there's tons of, of films out there, and 
I mean, that's, that's why I started this podcast is to get an excuse to, to go out and, and seek, uh, a lot of these that, that I've missed the first time around. Yeah, that's good. All right. And then on the other end of the spectrum, what's, what's your favorite film that you've only seen once? Well, it, it, it's kind of recent, so this one might be a bit of a cop-out because I don't know that I've had a ton of chances to see it yet. But I saw Birdman last year. Oh, nice. Um, and I'm going to put that up there because uh, one of the reasons that I really liked it had very little to do with what it was about. I just thought it was interesting, and I think nowadays, I think even more than like a fascinating twist or whatever, I just want something that makes me want to keep watching it the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that definitely did that, and and it's funny because uh, it's crossed my mind a bunch of times, like oh I should watch that again, but but it's also one of those that was very it was so interesting I either I'm not sure if I just don't want to I don't want to go back and nitpick it, or on the other hand too it was it was had some kind of intense emotions too, so yeah, it's like you gotta steal yourself up. <laughs> Yeah, I really love that film, and and that was one of my favorites from last year. I'm really glad that that it won the Best Picture, and I know a lot of people, a whole lot of people would probably disagree with me, but I I think it's great that a superhero film won the Best Picture. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Right, and you've you've already mentioned what your favorite superhero movie is, so yeah, gotta go Nolan on that one. Uh, Nolan the second, I call that one. <laughs> In the book of Nolan, chapter two. Uh, um, but uh, I since I also consider superhero movies a, a narrow niche of movies, I, I prefer that over genre. Um, but uh, as far as other narrow niche of, of movies, if you were to do like a, a blog or a podcast or, or just to choose a narrow niche of films as your favorite, something like superhero movies or like movies about mental illnesses, uh, what would you choose? Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I'm torn on this one, so I may, I may, I may give you two answers, but I, I like – there, there, there's two little slices, little niches of movies that I enjoy if they're done well, but they both are ones that can be done horribly as well. And one of them is like clever caper stories, mm-hmm. and because that, that can encompass all the way from like uh, kind of crime fiction to espionage to whatever. Right. Uh, and I think I think one of the examples of that is a film like uh, I think a film like Inception. Actually, I would put in that genre because it's it's that, but done in a really creative way that was a whole new thing for the time um and and the other the other maybe connection to that would also be maybe revenge stories <laughs> yeah and, and both, of, both of those are are high on my list as some of my favorites like i, I love a good caper movie mm-hmm. and and it's fun too because it's so interesting to to do because there's not really a specific definition of a caper movie it's like it either feels like a caper movie or it doesn't yeah yeah, and and you know it, it's funny because even though they're done very elegantly, even like the Ocean's Eleven, although those are also ones that if I'm flipping through channels, probably watch at least some. I they're they're not the ideal for me. They're just not quite as they're a little by the numbers, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so. and even one one that I would almost say kind of fits the bill on both of those markers, and and is another one of my. One of my favorite movies is uh, Payback with Mel Gibson. Oh yeah, yeah. The the theatrical cut especially because I, I know um, I've seen both cuts and that's one of the one of the few movies where I I do enjoy the theatrical cut better than the director's cut. Interesting. I don't think I saw the director's cut. What's the, is there any overarching major difference? Yeah, it, it's actually no, a very different film. Cut. 
yeah, they they cut out a lot of the the score. It's much more serious, and they like the whole um, ending with Chris Christopherson. That's completely uh, cha- different in the film. Oh, okay, interesting. Because the yeah. the Chris Christopherson that that whole um, build up for the ending, which is one of my favorite parts of the film, was something that. Uh, Mel Gibson decided he needed to add to the movie to make it because he didn't think it ended big enough. Okay, with the big explosion. Spoiler alert. Right. <laughs> Spoiler alert, there's an explosion <laughs> in that movie. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm with you. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I like about that one, too, that I think is important for uh, a caper is that uh, it's fun. Even though that's a very, in, in some ways, a very dark comedy, you know. Uh, yeah. But, but there's a lightheartedness to it. <laughs> Regardless, yeah, I mean he's like the the tagline for the film that I always remember and I think perfectly fits is like get ready to root for the bad guy. Yep, yeah, and and I remember that being that that is almost a trope now. The antihero has been done and 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 in some ways been done probably as well if not better than it was there, but uh, it's been done and redone. And but I remember that being a little bit. I want to. I don't want to say payback started that the antihero movement, but they sort of popularized it. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And then finally, what would you say right now is your biggest film-wise, uh, a film that you haven't seen yet that you feel like you should have gotten around to by now? You know, it's funny. I I, I scrolled through my watch list on Amazon. <laughs> I was looking at ones that I keep meaning to watch. And, okay, so this is one that I saw the first 20 minutes of, and I fell asleep or had to go to bed because I had to go to work in a few hours or something. And I've always wanted to go back and, and watch the rest of it because it was compelling. Uh, it's actually the movie Duel, uh, and it came out in 80, 83. It was, I think, Spielberg's first movie or one yeah. of his ones. Yeah, I do believe that was his first movie. It was like a yeah. TV film. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't any big, huge thing. It was just a traveling salesman who is being terrorized by uh, basically a, a big rig driver who he can't see, who keeps like following him and threatening him and isn't going to let him. It was trying to kill him, basically. And and I keep it's one that I started to watch and it's kind of up my alley because it's like interesting and this cool idea and kind of scary and classic and i keep thinking oh i should just watch that sometime it's, you know it's for like an hour and a half or something and i've never gotten around to going back and watching it yeah i've Shame heard things me. of that of that and it's and on top of that i mean it's i'm sure it's fascinating just to see how spielberg started on on this like more or less like a simple movie from what i understand yeah, that's what I remember. The bit that I saw, it was pretty straightforward. It was just, there's the truck, there's the guy. It's like, but it, I also remember it being super scary because I got the feeling that it was like, that could happen. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah. All right. Well, it was good to hear a little bit more about your movie tastes. But now we're going to talk about the film that you had me watch for the first time Unforgiven. Step over to the office and get the bullwhip. No. Man, don't want to get killed. What are y'all looking at? One of us died tonight. You don't look no meaner than hell, cold blooded damn killer. Maybe someone's picking off costumed heroes. I do not like assassins. Maybe it was a political killing. There are a lot of savages! There's a bunch of bloody savages! John thinks that there's gonna be a nuclear war. 
Okay, so I my my experience with Unforgiven uh, was I actually had part. It, it was partially described to me by my father because I think when it came out in theaters, I was a little too young to go see it, <laughs> or at least he thought so, or or I wasn't invited. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe this is kind of like Clint Eastwood's answer to some of his earlier work in his career with the spaghetti westerns and things where you've got the the white hat black hat and and even his early works he he played around with being the black hat right mm-hmm. and and so i guess we were rooting for the bad guy all the way back then sort of but in this movie i i just uh, my first memory about it is my father telling me yeah i saw unforgiven and we're i were driving somewhere and he just described it to me like yeah there's no good guys <laughs> in it <laughs> not really um it and it kind of shows how everybody was a little bit of a bad guy uh, and I just remember being fascinated by that idea. And, and he described a little bit about who was who, and even the sheriff is really kind of a bad guy. And so you've got uh, the the movie where uh, you know Clint Eastwood plays William Money, who is the. And I I get characters. I'll I'll swap characters' names around every time I'm on a movie podcast. I have to watch it. Um, but then you've got uh, and and he lives nearby his friend uh, Morgan Freeman. And uh, gosh, what was his name? Ned. Ned. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So. You know, they, they're basically like these guys. I don't want to say retired anything really. They sound like they were just bad dudes and they both settled down, uh, with, with, with wives. Clint Eastwood's wife has passed away at this point and he has two kids. I don't mm-hmm. think, I don't, I don't think, uh, Morgan Freeman had any kids, but, uh, unless I don't remember right. Anyway, they're, they're sought out because, uh, William Money or Bill Money, you know, is kind of famous for being this just badass dude who killed everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That he was a gunslinger and not even so much a gunslinger is just a a low life is of the way that they 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 kind of paint it. Right. Just like an alcoholic, a very violent alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And he gets this offer to come help kill these uh, these cowboys who. Uh, cut a prostitute's face in this little town and were never punished for it. And so the prostitutes have put out a bounty on their head. This kid who claims to be this stone-cold killer comes along and says, you got to help me kill these guys. We'll get this money. He's like, well, okay. No, (laughs) he doesn't seem to need a lot of convincing, but he kind of doesn't want to, but I think he needs the money. Right. And uh, and then they go, and that's the the start of this this wonderful adventure. (laughs) So what did you think watching it? Yeah, I I thought it was really a compelling watch. Like I I haven't seen a ton of westerns, uh, even though my my dad he was a, a big fan of Clint Eastwood and and all of those spaghetti westerns and, and those films of that era. I think I would say most of the westerns that I had watched either just ended up um, like whenever he's watching one and I just happen to be in the same room with him. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them never really caught my interest, um, and and even now I've I've only gone back and, and watched a handful of them. I, I think most of the westerns that I gravitated towards were ones that aren't considered the best. Like uh, I know one that I remember is like Maverick. Oh, um, there you go. Yeah, another another Mel Gibson movie. Um, That's a lot of another movie. I think was a lot of fun though. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and. And I realized, even though I'd heard a lot about how good this film is, I had no idea what it was actually about. Yeah. Um, and just this, just this weird tale in uh, about this retired um, criminal, basically. Yeah. Who managed to uh, evade capture and just disappear. 
Yeah. And and it's a really it seems like a lot of these same characters because um Gene Hackman's character also seems like I guess he was more on the side of the law, but he was the same kind of gunslinger, just the like the sheriff gun side yeah. of the gunslinger. Yeah, you get the picture that he he wasn't necessarily always on that side of the law either. Just like that's mm-hmm. the opening that there was in this particular situation. <laughs> yeah, so they need a sheriff, and I'm willing to kill guys, <laughs> or what? I'm the toughest, baddest guy in the town. So yeah, I'll be the sheriff. Yeah, and um. And I was surprised. I mean, I I knew that he was in there because I had watched the trailer, but I wasn't expecting Morgan Freeman in this film. Oh, right. Yeah. And and it's a really interesting uh, kind of comparison because, of course, they they play a lot with, I think, just this idea of the the savagery inherent to mankind. I mean, you start with this, this barbaric act that's done where, you know, there's these these cowboys who cut this this prostitute on her face you know and and uh for no for no real reason i don't think we ever get any kind of idea why if they're just savages if you know what's going on there yeah the the only explanation that that the movie gives it is uh, like the alice the like the um i forget the name of it but the, like the the matron of the the brothel sure um she says that she laughed whenever she saw saw that he had a small pecker. Oh right, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, he felt embarrassed or whatever, and so there's this, and and also the stark loneliness of these situations to be like, you know, it's it's just so interesting to compare. Um, and, and I don't have any idea about the the reality of the legal system back then, but to be like, oh, uh, we didn't like the way the law handled it, so we put a price out on his head, and everyone knows that we did. That's you know, I mean, just imagine the infrastructure of our society now being like, <laughs> you, it, to, it's it's just as well as if they'd taken a hit out on Facebook basically and said, <laughs> hey, kill this guy for us, we hate him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then everybody's just like, now nah, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> sort of the thing but you see where the uh obviously the those those women uh, you know they they don't have really any rights to speak of and so here's them trying to to protect one of their own or to stand up for or take take vengeance i guess i should say mm-hmm. and uh, and i also thought it, thought it was interesting that to see how the the story grew and and it's interesting because it, it's you can't really tell who um like you, there's no point to to know where the story got bigger than it was because whenever, like we obviously saw what happened, and then the next time that we hear about is the the kid um, yeah. who's who's recruiting the uh, Clint Eastwood. Um, right. He talks about the attack as if she was practically like she was just horribly disfigured like both eyes were cut out and she was oh, basically right. like cut up to bits yeah, there's hyperbole that it attached to the story mm-hmm. she's just scarred right just just scarred in the face um i shouldn't say it like that but <laughs> well and and so um one of the things that and we do we use spoilers on here i mean how, yeah, how full spoilers okay okay yeah spoilers for a movie that came out when i was too young just 1992 by the way <laughs> Okay, I was just looking at IMDb about that. Um, so one of the things I think is really interesting where I find this to be actually probably one – it's one of my favorite Westerns. Um, it was my favorite Western for a long time um, until that one came out. What's that one with uh, 
Oh gosh. Anyway, so uh, what's that one with uh, uh, Robert Duvall and uh, Kevin Costner that came out? That was a good one. That that's up there with it now. I'll remember it while I'm telling this other thing. One of the things that I I think was really interesting that uh, I think maybe a lesser narrative, a lesser story would have would have played with is that you've got these three cowboys that they're supposed to go kill, right? And or the two because it's it was the guy that actually did it, and then his friend, right. which I I still oh yeah two not three one of my I'm trying to think there was the one guy in the outhouse and one guy yeah yeah there were just two you're right I don't know where I manufactured three it was yeah. I threw Gene Hackman in there probably <laughs> so there's these two cowboys they're supposed to go kill and um, they kill them and that that's something that I think is actually that strengthens the story <laughs> I think that. You know, uh, there's a certain type of storytelling in Hollywood or whatever to where, you know, what are we supposed to see is this this redemption, sort of like a redemptive process where, no, let's not do it in the end. Mm. And it's like, no, we did. They did it. And we're dealing with the reality that that happened and how it happens. Yeah. And, and we also get to see the like the repercussions of that, because, yeah, like, uh, I mean, the entire time. Um, Clint Eastwood's character, William Money, he's presented as basically this like virtuous man who's left behind those ways. And by the end of the by the end of the movie, he's he's basically right back to where he was, where he starts drinking again, mm-hmm. and um, he like he doesn't kill everybody, but he kills everybody that was gunning for him. He's willing, yeah, <laughs> he's more than willing. Uh, no, I, I think, oh my gosh, Open Range is the other movie that popped in my head. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. So there you go. If you want to broaden your westerns, Open Range with Duval and Costner is another one to do that with. Um, I believe that's that's actually one of the few that I've seen. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, they have to kill a bunch of people, too. So I guess that's I guess that's a staple of westerns in a way. But one of the things I think where this is, is even stronger than that one is that uh, – most action movies and Western movies certainly fall into this trope of these superhuman killers, right? Mm-hmm. To, to where, uh, yeah, just because they had this experience killing people that, you know, they're just going to be awesome at everything. They can fight, they can stab, they can throw knives, they can shoot, you know, really well. And, and, and generally everybody shoots well. Uh, this is one where you see, you know, right away you got, Bill Money out of practice and kind of a little resistant to this whole thing. Mm. Uh, you've got the kid who claims to be this hard ass. Oh, I've killed so many people. Turns out he has, you know, which is not really a big surprise. I don't know if you were right. surprised by this twist that he was not an experienced stone cold killer. No, I, I was not surprised by that at all. <laughs> right. I, th- I think, um, especially, I would say like whenever he's like shooting, um, He's shooting at them whenever he first, quote unquote, sees them following him. Right. That was right about the the moment where I was positive that he had never killed anybody before. Yeah. And you find out he he also has uh, an eyesight problem. You know, it's a pretty severe eyesight problem that he's hoping to get eyeglasses so he can see basically at all. I mean, he can't see far enough to to do anything effective with with the gun unless someone's right there next to him. 
Yeah, he's like incredibly nearsighted. Yeah. So you, and then you've got Ned, who who's apparently a good shot, is Morgan Freeman's character. And then once they get there to the to the scene, and it's a very powerful and disturbing scene, I think, when they kill the first cowboy, because mm-hmm. they basically have this plan: we're going to snipe him out. You know, we'll just get sneak up on him. Ned will take him out, and there you go. And uh, and when they get there, he freezes up, and he's like, I can't do this anymore. He's and and he was the one who was more theoretically okay with it in mm-hmm. some ways. Once they made the decision to go, I mean, he he put up some resistance, you know. But then you know he's like, all right, we'll do this. And then he got there and he's like, I I can't do it. And then you got William Money, of course, the other guy's blind. <laughs> William Money trying to shoot him and he's not a good shot, as it turns out. Right, at least not at range. Not at range, right? Yeah, he's not a good shot except for up close. Uh, so he wounds the guy super badly, and uh, and he's laying there dying slowly, and and none of his friends can help him because they're afraid of getting shot, and so he he's in between the killers and his friends, and he's just screaming and crying and you know and knowing he's gonna die, and it's like it's not the bang bang ah fall off the water tower you know kind of experience that that a lot of times westerns are known for. Yeah, and and I really appreciated that. I mean, I I didn't think about it at the time other than. Like it, it was definitely something different, and it and it gives a very different mood yeah. to to the killing because it's because like kind of like you were talking about most westerns basically glorify the killings, right? And this doesn't do that at all. Yeah, yeah. Even the and then you see the reaction of the kid, the 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 what's his face? I can't remember what actor that was. It was, but uh, once he finally pulls the trigger. You know, uh, um, James Woolvet. How could I forget that name? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, from from such favorites since then as nothing. Um, no, it looks like he's been in a lot of like straight to video things. But uh, you know, he he's very very not into it once he has the experience of killing somebody. You know, mm-hmm. and one of the things I think I love about this movie is uh, some of the dialogue, the lines are just very classic, you know, where he's, um, you know, he, he confesses to Clint Eastwood's character. He's, I never really killed anyone before after he, he kills the second cowboy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, here's Bill, Bill Money just like, well, you sure killed the hell out of that guy. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, that's where also there's that great line where he tells him, well, I guess they had it coming. And he says to him, well, kid, we all got it coming. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, when I saw that the first time, I was thinking like just more like a, you know, gloomy inevitability of death kind of thing. We're all going to die. But then again, he's also saying, you know, if they had it coming, we definitely, <laughs> you know, as right. well, we're killing someone for money, um, so to speak. Not, 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 no pun intended on the name. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of great moments in this film. I, I think one of the base, the best moments for me is the scene with, uh, Gene Hackman, little Bill, whenever, mm-hmm. after he's, uh, beat the hell out of English Bob. Yeah. And he's, uh, talking to the, the author, the biographer in, in the, uh, in the jail cell. Yeah. And just talking about the gun and like trying to get him, like basically explaining what it's like and what type of person it is it takes in order to kill somebody. Yeah. And he just yeah. does it so effectively. And then on top of that, um, at least because I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but I believe what the trick was, uh, because I mean, we go through 
all this stuff where he's trying to get the, the author to shoot him. And then the author's like, well, what if I give the gun to um, English Bob, who's in, in the jail cell? And right. like his face is all bloody and he's he starts perking up and paying attention to the conversation. He's like, and, yeah, I could get in on that. And little Bill's like, well, go ahead. And and you see this like um, it's like a power struggle where yeah. uh, English Bob is trying to decide whether or not he can get away with it mm-hmm. uh, or whether or not there's some trick to it. Because this entire time, little Bill's talking about how the reason he wins is not because he's the fastest, but because he's patient and he's calculating and he yeah. takes stock of the entire situation. It It's interesting, too, because it gets into that whole thing of being willing to do that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, I think, one of the things, at least as they present it within this, it just seems like there is a difference. Because, you know, I, you get the idea, like, uh, the writer, I think, is meant more to represent, like, most of us, because he's the observer. Mm-hmm. Like, we're sitting watching the movie, and most of us are never going to be in the situation where we're going to, you know, shoot somebody. <laughs> Right. And, and but, then, but then just to, to finish – just to kind of finish my thought, the, the, yeah. the part that I really liked, at least the way that I read the scene, um, because it's it's not in, entirely – I think you have to be watching closely. Uh, and, and it's possible that I read it wrong, but I believe because you see him empty out the, the gun of its bullets, so you can see that it, it in fact was loaded. But I believe, and again, I could be wrong, but I believe that the there was one chamber that was empty, and that would have been the live chamber. Ah, uh, yeah. So I believe... He was still hedging his given, bets. Yeah, that, that would have given him the edge, because if the author or if English Bob would have attempted to shoot him, it would have been uh, the blank chamber. Right. He wasn't really putting his life in this guy's hands, who he didn't really know that well. Right, and that would have given him enough time mm-hmm. to get his Shoot. shot off before he could get yeah. the second shot off. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I, mean, I think that's a good point. Um, it, it's in, and that goes back, I think, yeah, to where where I'm going with like uh, that author. There's so many. There's these little steps, and I think they they go through that in the movie where it's not just shooting somebody like and and when you see it in movies it's almost easy to picture oh yeah there's people shooting each other whatever and this shows kind of like well they had to go find the guy they had to actually be good enough with a gun to hit a guy they had to actually decide how they're going to handle when he doesn't die right away Mm -hmm. you know it's it's this like it's this process and and it makes sense because anything you do is a process uh but to be like, here's the thing: where am I really gonna, you know, if you put we put ourselves in that author's shoes, am I even willing to carry a gun over and actually hand it to, you know what I mean? And and what's the, uh, do I want to even contribute to that experience? That's like this heavy, heavy thing. Whereas you take somebody like uh, little little Bill or or William Money, and they're like, yeah, that's part of my life. You know, mm-hmm. I know what that's like. I'll do it, and it's. I also uh, I, I admire the way that uh, they have William Money and Little Bill's characters never really interact till the end, mm-hmm. uh, but but they both you get this idea that they know each other pretty well, not specifically, but that they know each other's type of personality pretty well. Right. You know. And I mean, the, their first interaction. I mean, um, William Money, he's 
like sick from a fever and he can't really do anything about getting his butt handed to him. Right. Even even if he were at full health, I mean, there's a possibility because he he was surrounded and and he was at the disadvantage where whenever he comes back to the saloon, he's the one with the upper hand. Mm -hmm. Even though he's extremely outnumbered, they're all off their guard whenever he first comes sure. in. And and then the you know, and and he's in that mindset too, I think, is is the main thing too, where he gets there and he's just at that point a formidable scary figure just because he doesn't care at mm. that point. You know, he's he's completely at least for that moment, gone back, as you said, he's relapsed back into this person that he was. How he you know, he doesn't touch any alcohol until that time where they come up and tell him, Well, Ned got killed and this happened and then he's like whoop <laughs> Yeah. starts down in the whiskey and you get this idea there's either there's either a natural personality slip back to where drinking just seems natural at the time or as maybe this is just the way i read it but it seems like he's like well i know what i gotta do and so i've never done that sober i'm gonna i'm gonna get into town i'm gonna kill little bill i gotta eat my spinach exactly <laughs> that's my murder spinach <laughs> which would be a great brand for whiskey murder spinach. <laughs> Yeah, sponsored by Unforgiven. Uh, but yeah, that's and that's another uh, another I think I think great moment of that. You know, of course you've got the great interaction that, that little Bill and and William Money have there in that scene. But I, I you know one of the things that also sticks out in my mind uh, is when he is leaving and he calls out and there's all these people in town and some of them are armed and they're all like we're gonna take this guy out and he yells out to them if anybody shoots at me. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill his wife. I'm going to kill his family. I'm going to burn his house down. <laughs> so don't shoot. And then he just walks out. <laughs> but which is all bluster essentially. There's no, you know, somebody shoots him, he's going to die right. if they if they hit him. Um, but nobody's even willing to take a shot mm-hmm. because like I don't want to get involved with somebody like this at all. Uh, and I think that's a real interesting picture of this just that in, in some ways, I guess that's what's scary is it's not that he's a Superman. It's that he's out of control. Yeah. And one one more thing that I, I do want to touch on. I mean, there's there's so much of this film that we haven't even touched upon and that it is really a, a rich film. But uh, I wanted to go back to something that you said near the beginning, that there are no good guys here. And. I mean, just even some of the characters who seem like they're good, like the author. I mean, he's okay. even not really a good guy. He's not a bad guy. But at the same time, you see his basically his loyalty switch at, at just sure. a, at a flick of a at a, at a whim. Like, yeah, um, he comes in and he's basically English, English Bob's uh, personal biographer. Yeah. But then whenever he sees English Bob get bested by Little Bill, he yeah. immediately switches and becomes Little Bill's biographer and starts writing down his stories. It's like and this then, is, yeah, and, and Little Bill just eats that up, too, is another thing I think is interesting. Yeah, and and then whenever Bill Money kills Little Bill and um, they have the little back and forth, you, you get the impression right. that now he wants Cozy. to write about him, right? Yeah. 
And there, and I love the, where he shuts that down, where he's just like, how did you decide who to kill first? And he's kind of answers sort of in a half-hearted way. And, cause he's, you can, it seems almost like Clint Eastwood's character is just at that point interested himself. Like, I don't know. I never thought about that. And just, he's like, I was always lucky when it comes to killing guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then he keeps pressing the question and finally he's like, well, I can tell you he's going to be last. <laughs> <laughs> so. He, you know, it's interesting too, as you're saying that, and I'm thinking about, I never thought about this till right now, but I, I'm thinking about us, him being the avatar, the writer being the avatar for not only the common man, but the movie going public in a way. Mm-hmm. If it bleeds, it leads. It's, you know, it's sexy and exciting to, uh, to, to try to figure out this whole dynamic of who's shooting who and how, but yet definitely doesn't want to get his hands dirty himself, you know, but, but fascinated by, you know this this dysfunction yeah and and even the the prostitutes themselves they're they're not really without sin either i mean oh. besides just being prostitutes but the fact right. that that they're that they're going after these cowboys who've i mean they've they get paid off and and they're trying to make amends like whenever he offers um the delilah the uh his best pony uh-huh. In order for retribution, and they they don't want that's not enough for them. Yeah. Like they have to take that next step and have him killed. Yeah, and not only him, but both of them. Yeah, and and it, it you know it brings up a real I don't know it, it's an interesting thing when you look at and I, I and I'm going to over exhaust my limited knowledge here of, of history of the old west, but from my understanding, you know a lot of these types of towns. When it, you know, you kind of had the, the men come and settle and then there were the sex workers would, would kind of go along with that. And that was sort of before the town became respectable. Once they, once they brought in their spouses and kids and started building churches, a lot of times that was where the prostitution got pushed out. Um, and, and so there was this real like, yeah, we're going to use these services, but then we're going to just treat you terribly. That's <laughs> the idea and, and discard you, you know, and so you could see, I mean, almost that desperation, you know, if you think about just, just even the idea of being in a town, you know, like, oh, we're in a town and we don't really, our law enforcement is the, is the toughest, meanest guy that's willing to do it. And so if we don't like what he does, we got to have someone else come and kill somebody. And that's, that's a pretty hairy existence, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to think about. And that's where you see where not only is nobody really innocent, but everybody is like sort of caught up in this very gritty sort of or this just this, this this very heavy system i guess yeah and and one other thing that was a little surprising and it and it's almost like just kind of tossed out there um just casually is the fact that that the women are are basically uh sex slaves for the the pub owner oh because, exactly yeah because she's specifically like that's the reason why the ponies are given to the pub owner Right, because he basically lost value on his property. Yeah, exactly. So it's not really even like a like a heartfelt amends. It's like, oh, we damaged one prostitute face. Here are two ponies. Isn't that equitable? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's an interesting thing. And uh, so, uh, you know, the the little tagline at the end. I was curious what you thought of that because I've always been intrigued by the ending. Yeah. The. I was honestly confused by that because I'm horrible with names, and I was trying to figure out. Who that was? I know it well. So the ending, I know the ending piece. They have the ending card, or whatever they call that—a card or whatever—the the text that appears on the screen. Where I think his his wife's mother, his mother-in-law, essentially, who had 
not really spoken to her daughter, uh, was angry that she married William Money, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, comes looking for him and he's gone. He and the kids moved and it says that he opened a dry feed store of some kind or something like that. And I, so I think we are to take from that that he didn't really return to a life of violence again. He didn't just go off the deep end. He just dipped his toe in it enough to kill Little Bill and then, you know, and they accepted the money, obviously, and, and went mm-hmm. home, you know? Yeah. Which I, I was almost even a little surprised because we, we do have like that, that hint of a romance between the, the, the scarred prostitute who, um, and, and she had a face that, that I immediately recognized and I had to look it up before I figured out where I had seen her from, but, uh, she was also in The Crow. Oh, okay. That's what she, she, was... she played, uh, Sarah's mother, Darla. The, the mother of the, the little girl. Yeah. And, oh, uh, I, I thought that was kind of weird that she, she does that two years later. And one other connection that, because I was trying to figure out who, like which one she was on IMDb, but one of the other, um, prostitutes that I clicked on, it's funny that because she also played a, a, uh, a prostitute in Watchmen. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, she plays the the angry one who tells off uh, Rorschach. Yeah, yeah, who's like, uh, yeah, I thought that was quite an aggressive come on, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, but that was, I thought that was pretty funny, but uh, um, but yeah, I I thought this was a a great film. I'm glad that that you picked it, and, and I got the chance to watch it. It was was there anything else that you wanted to, to mention about Unforgiven before you wrap this up? Oh, like you say, we could keep going on and on, but no, let's 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 move on to, to the other. All right, so we are going to take a quick break, and whenever we come back, we're going to talk about the film that I had you watch for the first time, Watchmen. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. So Watchmen came out in 2009, and it's uh, the first film adaptation of uh, what I believe is still the, the best-selling graphic novel of, of, of all time and uh, considered by many to be the best written and uh, drawn graphic novel of all time, uh, Watchmen from uh, Alan Moore. And it's uh, set in an alternate 1985 in a world where there have been superheroes uh, that started out in the 40s as costume crime fighters, and then uh, 10 to 15 years later, or so the, a real superhero was created with Doctor Doctor uh, Manhattan, um, and then uh, a new group of superheroes kind of came in and, and filled out the ranks, and then uh, Nixon gets selected to a third term. And then several, a couple more terms after that, and and he um, basically criminalizes uh, superheroes, and um, and this comes out about ten years after that, 
where somebody kills the the comedian, one of the the original New Minutemen, as they were called in the 40s, and he was still doing superhero work more or less for the government, and they basically uh, unwrap this uh, this giant conspiracy. And it's it's very dark. It's very violent. It's uh, Zack Snyder's uh, second big superhero film after 300. And even though it was considered at, at some point to be like an unfilmable graphic novel, um, he did manage to popularize it and uh, and made a successful uh, R-rated superhero movie. Um, and yeah. So, having watched this for the first time, I, I do have to ask: Were you familiar with the graphic novel? I've read, yeah, I have read the graphic novel. Um, I, I purposefully, you know, I didn't see this when it came out. It just kind of, I just missed it basically. Um, thought it was an interesting idea, though. Uh, but then I had heard a lot of people were disappointed with it, and I guess that cooled my me on on watching it for a while. And then uh, just actually, it's funny because just a, a couple of years ago, I was reminded that it existed for some reason. You know, I saw it on somewhere, and uh, and so I purposefully went and read the graphic novel because I thought, well, people seem to like that uh, better, <laughs> and so I thought I'd read that first before I ended up running into it and watching it and then i forgot about it again so when you mentioned it it was like oh yeah this is one that i've been i've meant to watch it you know but so i had read the graphic novel before and i enjoyed it i could see i i could definitely see uh where they struggled to recreate it and when they call it unfilmable there are certain aspects that i noticed he didn't even try to recreate Mm -hmm. and um yeah one one thing that i've found uh, kind of in the past few years since this since this has come out i feel like people who have read and and loved and reread the graphic novel first before seeing the movie tend to come down a little bit harder on the film but people who have come into the film fresh without having read the graphic novel um really enjoy it because it it is very different from a lot of superhero movies and and other action movies as well yeah oh and you mentioned yeah like you mentioned uh dark is uh probably underselling it a little bit <laughs> uh it, it it's very dark and there's a violence there's there's a certain type of violence that's there too that is not i don't even want to say realistic or hyper realistic it's uh it's almost like this is an alternate world it reminded me in a way of uh you know, Quentin Tarantino often talks about when *Inglorious Bastards* came out that he's always envisioned that this world was a hyper-violent world where World War II was solved by murdering Hitler or whatever, and so that made everybody off the hook crazy for violence and just more comfortable with it. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I buy into that. He's always thought that. That sounds a little bit like George Lucas had all of Star Wars in his head before he made the first one, you know. But <laughs> yeah, it seems like a story that was invented after. <laughs> but. For, for whatever reason but um this to me seemed like that to where it's like you know if if society really did embrace costumed vigilantes what would happen and it, it seems like here's this very darkly conservative if if you will i mean like like very uh, uh hardcore justice oriented you know very very uh, violent world that they live mm-hmm. in yeah and and i think it, it's interesting that you that we just talked about Unforgiven before this, because something that, that I hadn't thought of too much is 
in this film, they're similar to Unforgiven. There really aren't any good guys. Like everyone has yeah. um, has bad has bad qualities to them. Oh sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got. Uh, I mean, uh, even the most uh, supposedly the most principled one, right? Is is, is probably Rorschach, I guess. Rorschach. Who well, I, I would I would say Dan Dryberg is probably the the closest to being the most virtuous. Probably. Um, yeah, yeah, you could probably say that. There's a, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, so yeah, and either of those are both. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, uh, they although they they kind of play them off as like two sides of the same coin in a way. Rorschach's just the more violent. Mm. Uh, let's kill them all, you know. And and then uh, yeah, you're right. Dan is more or uh, what is his superhero name? Night Owl. Night Owl, and and I think it's kind of funny because I. I didn't know this until I read the graphic novel afterwards that it's Night Owl spelled N-I-T-E. Oh, okay. Which I always thought that that was weird that they that in in a world where they would only be able to like share their names being spoken aloud, it, I found it weird that 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 nomenclature would, would end up coming off, and and he wouldn't That's just be considered. Like nights, like N I G H T, which would make a lot more sense, mm. I think. But yeah, yeah, okay. Well, that's yeah, and so they they kind of are the ones who are like we're trying to be the good guys, sort of. Except that Rorschach has decided a while back that I'll oh, just kill people sometimes. You know, I don't really care um, <laughs> about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he's he's set in a very black and white view of the world. Yes, and. And I guess um, that's that's one of the things that they're ultimately uh, looking at. I, I'll tell you what, though. I mean, just like when I read the graphic novel, even though it's super dark, uh, I think that it's a it's a very effective storytelling, and it's a very interesting story uh, to tell. That that and and one of the things once again that probably strengthens it is the fact that they didn't shy away from ending it in a complicated, tragic way. Mm-hmm. You know that that the villain wins and then to a certain extent they let him be correct sort of right and and that and that comes back around to the the black and white nature of rorschach because he can't deal with being like a shade of gray himself Mm -hmm. and and that's why he asks dr manhattan to kill him at the end and and it's it's interesting too that i mean like his his face reflects that where yeah. His his mask is um, black and white with without any shades of gray without the them ever mixing. Yeah, yeah, and and I I wasn't sure how they were gonna show him. I mean, some of his dialogue in the graphic novel I think is even more reprehensible than the movie. But he's very just he's harshly judgmental. I I believe in the graphic novel when uh, 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 Sally uh, talks to him about oh you know the comedian he was a real you know he was a real dick and you know, he raped my mom. I think she even says something about the rape and he's like well you know he was but he was in service of his country. I'm not going to begrudge him uh, you know acting out here and there. Something along the lines of like oh, no big deal he raped a woman whatever you know he's very he's he's very uh, misogynistic he's very homophobic he's very mm-hmm. you know I think there's there's tones of racism uh, if I remember correctly if I don't remember if that was in the movie or the book but I, I believe it was just in the book I, yeah. I mean there there's not really the the only like black person in the film <laughs> that I can think of is the psychiatrist. That's right, <laughs> and and I, and also like one of the other criminals that he uh, he scalds with the uh, the fry oil. Oh, that's right. 
<laughs> so yeah, we could, I could we could draw conclusions if we try, but uh, yeah, no. So he he's not a great dude, is what I'm saying. He sits in well uh, for me too. There's a part in the movie where he watches a guy's arms be cut off, and he just kind of goes, <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's like he's fairly jaded. Uh, it's like that just happened. I mean, for I think for anyone at all, that would be oh, that's the worst thing ever that I can think of seeing. <laughs> but he's like, oh, that's kind of funny. Um, so it's a very violent world, obviously, but it tells us it does tell this story uh, quite effectively. I, I did notice one of the differences uh, the, that was in the movie was that uh, the final plan was to frame Doctor Manhattan for this crime, which I thought was better in the graphic novel. I think. It was like a big space squid, spider monster. What was it? Yeah, yeah squid. it was like a psychic space squid. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I, I can only imagine. I haven't. I don't know this specifically, but I can only imagine that uh, Zack Snyder may have thought, "No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> no, no one will go with us there." <laughs> yeah, and I've heard, I've heard a couple different arguments for and against the the space squid and. And I can see the the merit of both of them. Um, I I think the I think the best argument for the space squid is that, and for him to be framing Doctor Manhattan, it's and even though like as a viewer you can tell that he has become this this thing that's not really affiliated with any country. He's like this otherworldly threat. Right. But. At the same time, like it, it's even mentioned um, earlier in the movie that the, there is a Superman and he is American, right? And so, yes, from the American's point of view, then he is this outsider threat that they would that they would uh, join forces with other countries. But I believe that other countries' perspective of it. <laughs> It's just that Dr. Manhattan is another American, and I don't think that they would – I think it would make sense that – Americans, yeah. Right, that they would still be um, aggressive towards America for yeah, – That's a good point, yeah. I, the superhero, whereas a space squid has no affiliation whatsoever. <laughs> right, and we're and, – and you're right, because it united everybody against like, uh, oh, aliens are now a thing. Let's go ahead and uh, and prepare to fight them. But I do also think that it, it makes more sense from a storytelling perspective or, or for like a more concise storytelling because Dr. Manhattan is something that's, that we see existing and already exists within this movie universe. Right. And it's much easier to – to frame him <laughs> than from this thing that just came just literally came out of nowhere right yeah i'm with you one of the things that i think um the the graphic novel also struck me as something that was very groundbreaking because it tells the story uh in in several different ways you know it'll have a piece of a biography piece of a news article it, it it just has all these different things that in a movie you have to do more straightforward narrative obviously yeah and and I haven't been able to to get a hold of it or or find it anywhere online. But there is the uh, the ultimate cut. I've I've watched the other segments separately because they did come out with uh, this like uh, uh, in order to to try and mimic that. Um, they have this like uh, mockumentary under the hood where oh, they they right. talk about where they talked to Hollis Mason about him writing the book and. They, it's like a pseudo, like 80s, um, yeah, like Dateline type show. 
one of the that's interesting that they did that. I, I think one of and, the things that and they also did yeah. an animated version of the pirate comic book. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to say if they did that because that was a piece that for me reading the graphic novel. That's one of the things that made it much better is that 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 comic book that the kid is reading is is at first annoying a little bit, <laughs> although it's a compelling story in and of itself. But then at the end you find out, oh, that's the story that we're telling, which is here's a guy trying to escape from pirates and he ultimately becomes. One. Yeah. yeah, and um, in in the ultimate cut of this film, it it does take those two two pieces and intercuts them into the movie. Interesting, which would make it about six hours long. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I as as I was telling you before we started recording, I was watching the, yeah. the director's cut for the first time, and I got a, about two hours and 40 minutes into it until I realized that I started it too late and I still had another like 15, 20 minutes left to go. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you too, one of the things that I, I felt, uh, maybe it dated the movie a bit, I'm not sure, was that it took forever for anything to happen. I, there was a lot of like, well, we're walking to the gravesite now, and no, we're not cutting ahead. We're walking. We're going to walk, you're going to walk with us <laughs> to the gravesite. And, uh, on the one hand, I mean, they did some really great work. I felt like the score was was really good. The 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 way they used music with it, yeah. Um, but I did feel like there were a few times where they're like, "All right, this is an emotionally meaningful scene. <laughs> like we're gonna slam it right over your head. <laughs> that you're gonna have an emotion here, you know, whether you like it or not. And it's gonna be, you know, we're gonna give you time for that to fester. Um, yeah." Yeah, I, I do love the, the the soundtrack to this film. I mean, I, I think that that the opening, that the way they do the opening credits, is really just it's almost like a masterpiece. And and how it yeah. it so um, so elegantly tells you some of the the most meaningful bits of this alternate history. Just yeah. with these slightly moving photographs that's yeah, they that, no, get motion as it goes along. And they'll show little clips, uh, you know, yeah, just little clips that they don't really call back to, but they give you a really good image. They tell a story without without having, in, in contrast to some of those other moments I'm referring to <laughs> where they seem to take forever to, you know, walk across the street. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the opening scene, I agree with you, is a, a masterpiece of telling a story very quickly to immerse you into this alternate universe. It, in a way, it reminds me, in a weird way, it reminds me of uh, Pixar's Up when they tell mm-hmm. the whole story of the man and his wife's, you know, whole life together in, in just a few minutes with no dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, except it's a much more bleak and depressing story that they're <laughs> telling. Uh, and yeah. which, by the way, uh, I was watching that and I was like, I'm sorry, did the comedian just kill Kennedy? <laughs> because that's never referenced again (laughs) here he is in his life i feel really bad i was really kind of a you know a major douchebag oh oh, and i killed kennedy that's a little (laughs) that's not you know but whatever yeah and i mean just the just the way all this comes together and it's it's really dense um that that's something that i noticed especially with like the first time that I watched this it is really how dense it is. And it, it's something that really rewards multiple viewings where, um, in, like in that opening sequence, you are not likely to notice it the first time around the fact that we have a, a young, um, 
Rorschach is, is one of the scenes. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Because the, it, it the, focuses on, on the newspaper and what the headline is. Right. And here's the guy the guy basically ruffling his hair as there's like a line of dudes waiting <laughs> for his mom, who's apparently a prostitute. Yeah. And yeah. we also see a, a young uh, Silk Spectre, the, the second spil- Silk Spectre. Mm-hmm. Uh, in another in another one of those scenes, yeah, and there there's all sorts of of things similar to that, and just the way that I think the set design and some of the the backgrounds are really great and similar to three hundred um i i can't i don't know any specifics because i I have only read the graphic novel once and it and it's been a few years ago now. Yeah, but there is a lot of um, homage to the graphic novel and and the panels, and and the way that these the shots are are designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and you know it's very com- it has a very graphic novel comicy kind of uh, feel without being silly, which is I think was very yeah. important because it's such a heavy dark subject matter. You wouldn't want it to be. You know, like you wouldn't want any trace of the Adam West's Batman, you know, right. kind of feeling. Uh, but yet it did seem like it was pulled from a graphic novel, you know, so mm-hmm. cartoony, but in that sense, graphic novel cartoony. Yeah. I thought that was very effective in that way. And uh, one other complaint that, that some people have, which uh, I, I think it's it's like a necessary evil, is how basically how powered up. All of the heroes are in this film compared to what th- they seem to be in, in the graphic novel. Because- oh, right. They they certainly have a certain degree of superhuman spin kick ability. Right. Yeah. And and that's I, I think you also kind of mentioned that uh, when we were talking about Unforgiven, how everyone, how like uh, heroes all tend to be these like super powered uh, killing machines. You've got right Stearns in as well as superhero movies, and and these are all supposed to be normal people, mm-hmm. but in and um, I believe it's just in the director's cut. But in um, whenever Hollis Mason, whenever he gets killed, he has th- this moment where he starts fighting back, and yeah. it's like he, it's this old man, and he's probably gone thirty years without fighting, and he can Perfect. still put up. He still puts up a little bit of a fight before still the Batman's his way through everybody. Right, and and it, I think it, it has a, a great moment too because as he's fighting, he gets like he sees flashes of him fighting in his past, like he sees hmm. his black and white um, uh, callbacks to him uh, fighting like uh, villains in the, in sepia tone. Yeah, from his past, and I thought that that was a, a nice little touch that they added in in the director's cut. And I, I especially like the idea of his memories being in sepia tone. If we are to, you know, I I, I would interpret that literally that he remembers things in that way. <laughs> that the part of the alternate reality is that part of the world was in sepia tone at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's no, that's actually it's funny. I have a mixed feeling about it because uh, yeah, for example, you know, you watch that, and that did occur to me at the final fight scene. There's no real reason why Rorschach would be a martial arts expert. I didn't really, you know what I mean? Like, he'd be tough, but he'd be more of a street fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing, is everybody who fights is like a spin-kick ninja in, in the world of movies, and there is quite a bit of that. I mean, even the opening sequence with the comedian, and, and as it turns out, Ozzy Modo, Ozzy Mendes? Uh, Ozzy Mendes. Uh, yeah, Ozzy Mendes. Uh, 
you know, there's and there's some implication that that you know Adrian Vetter Ozymandias is uh you know he catches a bullet literally and he's like super fast and it's like uh, are we supposed to chalk that up to athletic training you know <laughs> that uh, for a normal person um, and I I, I kind of felt it occurred to me as I'm watching that that even though that wasn't in the graphic novel um, you know what's his name uh, uh, Doctor Manhattan is the only one with actual superpowers and that's very sort of that's sort of important to the plot. That everybody else is a normal person, right? But I, I felt like they could have, if they were gonna put that kind of action in there, you know, they could have included something along the lines of either tone down the action or just put one line of dialogue somewhere that says something like, you know, I don't know, studies have shown that these were people who were abnormally athletically gifted, so that we're not even asked to believe that they're necessarily super, that not an X gene necessarily, but just. You no, know, that's why they were, you know, gravitated towards it or something. I don't know, you know. Yeah, and instead they just kind of hint that that it's it generally attracted people who are slightly unhinged. Right, right. That are are risk takers, but that wouldn't necessarily equate to someone who's super dedicated to training. I mean, yeah, and that's always kind of a thing with super superhero things. I mean, even Batman, you know, historically, where we all just kind of agree to be okay with the idea that that well we just know he's trained a bunch you know he does like a mad number of push-ups so therefore <laughs> you know he can heal from a broken back really fast or jump off a building and be fine you know or whatever mm-hmm. we 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 just kind of wink at it and so i guess they figured we would do that the same thing but i do think it can't that i do think that's a that's a legitimate criticism to say you know if you're asking for this to be the grittier more realistic you know then uh you know, give it then then make a decision there of how you're going to account for that. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, the the only kind of comments we get against them is that uh, the comedian was built like a linebacker. Like right. Just, yeah, he's a really big dude. Yeah. Yeah, and and even like uh, Night Owl. I mean, whenever they show him, he he kind of looks like he has a bit of a dad bod. Yeah. No, that's. That's one thing I thought was very interesting was they seem to go out of their way to nerd him up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always wearing nerdy clothes. He's not the most stacked or built in, in the way. Um, he's got those he, those those just I mean bulletproof glass <laughs> eyeglasses. You know, uh, and then but then whenever you know there and and by the way this is one of the this is also a superhero trope that I always enjoy, which is. The couple that well, uh, number one, let's take a shortcut down this this death trap, this death box alley, um, you know, covered with bloodstains and graffiti. And here's 25 well-armed thugs that that apparently are really, really banking on this guy having a pretty thick wallet. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, I mean, I I can imagine the most low-life dirtbags in the world say, round up like 20 of my friends and let's all go <laughs> murder some random couple for a split what's, of. Uh... Like five dollars each, <laughs> exactly for whatever they have on them. So, I mean, I guess you know he's got Silk Spectre uh, with him, and they think they can maybe rape her or something. I don't know if you can put a price on that, but uh, that's you know anyway. So, uh, that's that's this this sort of funny thing that you see where all of a sudden here's twenty thirty guys, and but then you know he just just busts them to pieces. <laughs> yeah, and and so does she apparently. And once again, I think you know to your point. None of that. They there's not a, any real reason to believe that any of them have been staying in any kind of condition. Yeah, for literally ten years. Right. Exactly. 
So, yeah. It's not exactly like riding a bike. Right. <laughs> yeah, and the, but that's that's always the implication. I think that's one of those deeper movie tropes that nobody really m- mentions. It's kind of a superpower that all movie people have, is if you're ever good at something, you're always good at it. Like, like talent is genetically inborn somehow. Yeah. You know, you're good at fighting, you're always going to be the best fighter in a fight. You know, you can take out a whole crowd of people. Yeah, and one thing that... I I noticed a bit more on on this viewing is that I, I know it's supposed to be like an alternate 1985, but it doesn't feel like it's supposed to be set in 1985, other than the fact that Nixon is the president, and and we have like a few other moments where we see like uh, um, notable historical figures from that sure. era, but the the fashion doesn't exactly feel well, like it's 1980s yeah. in fact a lot of it almost feels like it's late 70s more than mid 80s yeah no i think that's right and that that kind of throws things off a little bit but um i i don't know i still think that it's it's a fascinating film oh it is and i think it takes some chances that weren't being taken back then when it was made Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and definitely the graphic novel does, but of course that though that form of art is always a little more pushing the envelope, you know, more than more mainstream forms of art are. Although you could say graphic novels have arrived to the mainstream now, but when Alan Moore wrote that, it was it was much more groundbreaking than it was by when it was finally brought to the screen. I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, it was interesting, and you know, one of the things it obviously has influences in other cultural uh, uh, touchstones like uh, Pixar's The Incredibles. I mean, I think right. that and uh, what's the The Dark Knight Returns both you know had strong influences over that that type of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot that you see you see people really still playing with these themes, and I think even in Christopher Nolan's uh, Batman or. You know, you, you see some of these themes that are being played with that are like, how would the world, or even Zack Snyder's Superman, which here's a tie-in, same guy, right? Yeah. Um, where they're playing with that theme of how does the world really react to a superhero, and can we make it a little more, a little more real-world issues? And I think it opened the door for a lot of interesting storytelling ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I will say that. Um, I think some people criticize Zack Snyder a little bit, but I, I think at the same time it it still works and it and it holds up. It is his style of action, um, where he has all it's it's almost like signature Zack Snyder with the the slowdowns and speed ups. Yeah, right. And well, and I'll say this too. I mean, it kind of ties in with like Man of Steel. One of the critiques that people had for that is they they didn't like. A lot of what he did with Man of Steel, without going off and making this a Man of Steel episode, but uh, he yeah, did play I, with what. Spoiler I think alert! I'll, I'll actually be doing that uh, here in uh, ah, an yeah. episode or two down the line. It, apparently, I've, I'm doing a lot of Zack Snyder recently because That's I right. I just wrote about 300 last oh, week. Oh, there you go. Hey, no, you never know. Maybe you get him on. Maybe he's listening. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're calling you out, Zack Snyder. But. Well, one of the things I think about it uh, is is that uh, you know one of the things he did do though is he he, he took a chance on telling the story from what I, I've I've read a lot of uh, a lot of writers and and uh, just just different different people who, that if you're truly truly into the deep nerdhood you know you'll be reading things online about 
theoretical superhero storylines. But a lot of people agree that the one of the only things that really makes Superman compelling is is his his true weakness is not kryptonite. His true weakness is that he can't save everybody. For all his godlike powers, he can't actually be everywhere at the same time. And mm-hmm. and that's actually more interesting as a narrative weakness uh, than kryptonite, you know, or anything else, or like big space monsters or something. So, you know, I did I do think he took the chance to play with that in Man of Steel. Yeah, and what is what did you think? Um, I think another, I don't know, maybe not polarizing, but uh, another figure that that some people have issues with in in this film is Billy Crudup's portrayal of Doctor Manhattan, and uh, like his performance, and, and also it's kind of weird whenever it doesn't come up too often, but every once in sure. a while I'll see someone just complaining about the fact that. That he has, that he's flying free for about did, half. Do we bit. know if he did his own penis work? Is that, <laughs> uh, does it, I don't know if anyone's ever said. <laughs> um, the, that's got to factor into his autobiography title someday, right? <laughs> when he writes his tell-all, it's like. <laughs> no, uh, it's interesting because I, I, I thought that as I was watching it. Obviously, you, you think about the nudity because that's so obvious. You, uh, but when you when you read the graphic novel and it does his backstory a little bit in there, he talks about how they gave him a, a uniform and he modifies it basically down to a thong at some point and then just discards it so that most of the time he's just naked um, as a way because he doesn't require clothing. Right, and and, uh, and that I think is a is something that Alan Moore does to dehumanize him even more to where I don't care I'm just straight up you know doing this. I don't know that that comes across in the movie because it doesn't really explain it. <laughs> yeah, he's just like naked all the time, and you do yeah. have to have that that background, or do you have yeah. to like make the mental leap that that he doesn't need clothes for protection, and then he doesn't care about modesty. Right, and that's I, I think you could make that jump when you're watching it, maybe, but it just depends. And, and here's the thing, you know, isn't it funny? I mean, we're used to seeing uh, boobs in all kinds of places in movies, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, throw throw a, a glowing blue dick in, in, into the scene and everybody's going to freak out. <laughs> it's male nudity in a way that we don't usually see. And so uh, it, it is interesting because I, I would wonder if it was like, a female character, you know, I mean, just as recently as uh, this, this last few months we had, or this last year as they were in production, once they showed, uh, oh, what's her name on Star Wars, the new Star Wars Phasma, the storm, female stormtrooper captain's costume, there were actually, you know, there was complaints that was well followed on Twitter where people tweeted back and said, uh, how are we supposed to know she's a girl? You know, <laughs> no, there's no boob shape on the armor. The people wanted to see those, uh, you know, the outline of of her breasts, and you know, to the point where they they wouldn't feel bad tweeting that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's kind of an interesting uh, difference too. I think I mm-hmm. I don't know. It didn't bother me too much, but I had the background of reading the graphic novel, and so I was like, I get it. But I I did think while I was watching it that would be distracting if you didn't know why he's swinging around like that. Yeah, although I, I will say that I mean, I think if you can be mature enough and and you can look past it, like I, for the most part, I didn't really notice it one way or the other because right. it is presented in, in a very non-sexualized manner. It's not really right. focused on 
the the only way that you're going to notice it is if you a, as a person actually focus on it yourself yeah, yeah. and yeah. something that i i did actually notice uh, which is kind of funny on the other end of the spectrum is is how much they on, on the opposite end that they go to avoid showing nudity on uh Malin Ackerman where it's most of the time like she has a couple sex scenes but you only catch like her full breasts a couple times uh, for moments and, and most of the time it's uh, it's more of a long shot or like they cut away at a certain point or it's or it's post all the stuff happening and yeah yeah well yeah it's yeah that is interesting i didn't i hadn't really thought about that the difference um but it does kind of go that's an interesting difference to go the other direction and it is interesting that they would get more complaints <laughs> going that way either you don't hear anyone complaining about that right right it's like there was a sex scene and you could see some of her naked outline what's up with that no one complained about that. um you know there's definite definite double standard there i think uh, obviously yeah yeah and then i mean we also have which it's it, it's almost a little cliched <laughs> um the way that they have the the sex scene and it, and it is kind of interesting just the way that they they have the obvious like uh, comparison to the like the the sexual inadequacies inadequacies whenever he's not wearing the costume and when they're not like in in the middle of fighting and then oh right yeah we need to afterwards and then they have the visual um representation of the climax whenever she hits the flamethrower I forgot about. No, it's funny. No, I do, but I remember now that you say that. I remember uh, thinking, okay, that's a little on the nose there, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> when it's like, oops, whoosh, yeah, uh, yeah. I thought that was pretty funny, actually. Yeah, not, not in a, not funny in a. They meant to do it. With, <laughs> obviously, they meant to do it, but I was like, yeah, that's that's. They didn't funny. mean it. To be so funny. dumb. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like here's this gritty hard edge thing and hey, let's have a little or- orgasm joke. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, but uh, overall I I I actually, you know, I actually overall liked it, especially like it for what it opened the door for with storytelling and superheroes. Yeah, and and I I still really enjoy it. I I think that it does have some of the, some problems to it. Uh, I think it, it is a little on the nose and maybe overly stylized in, in some places. I, I I do think that a lot of that does have to be there. And, and it's easy to judge looking back, uh, I think. And a lot of times when something is a first in an area, um, that, it, that it, it does have that when you look back on it after things have been done, uh, especially when they've been done in some ways, maybe even a little better. <laughs> yeah. But I I do I do still see it as almost like a necessary evil because I I don't think it would have been quite as popular if it didn't have all as many of those stylized action sequences that because they are fun action moments and fun action beats and and even though they are like highly violent in places with with the stylized blood and gore it is still like fun to watch right i i'm with you on that i think for all the complaining people do it's like do you really want to see a realistic fight scene with a 10 year old out of shape (laughs) superhero who's going to get beat up (laughs) yeah and and on top of that i i think it, it helps 
um, kind of cut cut into the the bleakness uh, of everything else. Yes. No. Yeah. Exactly. And and it gets back to that what I call I call them the the non uh, uh they're non touted superpowers that all movie characters just seem to have. You know. I mean, mm-hmm. they're always omniscient when they need to be. They're always uh, indestructible when they need to be. You know. They never run out of bullets unless it's important to the plot. And and some of that is just storytelling. You know, it would be you can't really tie your hands completely with a completely realistic world uh, or else it just doesn't function as a story. Right. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad that you enjoyed the film um, yeah, thank and, you, and you took the chance to watch it. Doing it. Yeah. And and it was fun for me to to revisit it and and again thank you for for picking Unforgiven I I really enjoyed that too and and thank you for coming on and, and talking with me today it was a ton of fun thank you I appreciate it right. and why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online that's right well you know you can hop on over to iTunes look up the Broken Brain we're also available through Stitcher or Podbay or some of those other more Android based apps. Uh, but one of the best places to keep on uh, abreast of what's going on with the broken brain or all things podcast related to that is at my website, dwighthurst.com. Just click on the podcast. It's one of the first links. Or you can go dwighthurst.com slash podcast, listen to our uh, current episode or uh, see any of our growing network of podcasts and, you know, just keep uh, updated on that news right there. And as always, I'm Bubba Wheats, and you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat. You can also go directly to the FilmWise page by going to filmwise.com. And if you're more interested in TV, uh, superheroes on TV, I'm still doing channelsuperhero.com with my team where we're covering all the current superhero TV shows um, that are out each week and seems like more and more are popping up every year. And if you want to know what two films I'll be talking about on the next episode, go ahead and listen through to the end for the mashup trailer. Until next time. It trained. Excuse me. Built to disappear. How do you find someone who has spent a lifetime covering his tracks? If we don't take care of this, we will both burn. I will find him! What is it? Something wrong? Here it's an S. I don't recognize any of this. It's not an S. Everything I ever learned means hope. I'm gonna make it stop.